Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The InDesigner, the podcast that provides information, instruction, and insight for designers using and learning Adobe InDesign. I'm your host, Michael Murphy, and this is episode 19, the second installment in our series on tables. But it is not the advanced tables topic that I promised last week. I realized as I was putting this together that there is a big gap between the very basic table creation and formatting that we covered last week and the huge potential of high-end table work. So we need to fill in the gap with this intermediate tables episode. We'll wrap this all up next week. In the last episode, we learned to crawl. This time out, we're going to hit the ground running, and in the next installment, we're going to fly. But enough talk, let's move forward and cover how to fine-tune table settings with an incredible amount of detail and control. Here's a table that's almost finished, but there are some formatting details that need to be finalized. To start with, I need to help guide the reader's eye across this wide expanse of numbers, so that by the time they get to the data all the way over here, they know it still pertains to what they were starting to look at over here. Rather than go in and manually apply colors to rows, we're going to take advantage of some built-in automation by going to the Table menu and selecting Table Options, Alternating Fills. This brings up the Table Options dialog, which I'll go into in greater detail in a minute or two. For now, we're in the Fills panel where I want to specify an alternating pattern. I have a lot of options here, but what I want for my table is that every other row alternate between a 10% tint swatch of my blue color and a fill of paper. Since I have preview checked, you can see this applied right behind the dialog box. Next, I want to exclude the top two rows from my pattern because they're not part of this sequence of data in the body rows. So I have the skip first option set to skip the first two rows. Similarly, I have two rows of totals at the bottom of the table and another row with a source line below that, so I'll have the skip last option set to three rows. I'll click OK for now, and you'll see that my alternating fill pattern is in place with the appropriate rows excluded. Besides not having to apply fills manually to every other row in this table, there's another benefit of this function, and that is, if one or more rows of data in this table are removed or added, InDesign will maintain the alternating pattern. If I delete one row with the blue fill, the row beneath, which was white, gets filled with the appropriate color in the sequence. So if this table gets changed, you won't have to keep adjusting your fills. But I actually want this row back in the table, so I'll undo that deletion, and again, the pattern adjusts accordingly and I can still locally override any part of this sequence. For instance, I want to emphasize the numbers in the first column by making those cells solid blue and knocking out the numbers in white, all the while maintaining the alternate fills for the rest of the row. And then, just because I'm never satisfied, I'm going to manually add a subtle stroke between these rows of one half point in a 35% tint of my blue color, just to give a nice finished edge to those fills, all of which I can do right within the swatches and stroke palettes. Alternating fills is just one of many options available to you in the Table Options palette. Let's go back to that palette and take a look at some of the others. 
You need to have some portion of the table selected or your cursor within any cell to call up the table options dialog, which has five separate categories each with their own very specific settings. Starting with table setup, you can indicate the number of body rows and columns, header and footer rows, the border for the table, spacing above and below in the text frame, and in what order InDesign draws, or more accurately stacks, the strokes you apply to your table. The row stroke settings provide you the same alternating pattern functionality we just put to use with our row fills, except it affects the horizontal strokes in your table, as does the column strokes dialog, except it affects the vertical strokes. So if you get the concept of what we just did to apply alternating fills, then you know how the row and column strokes work too. Fills we're going to skip over since we already covered that, and we'll move on to the last option in this dialog, which is headers and footers. It's also a perfect segue because that's what I'm going to demonstrate next. Although I haven't designated them as such yet, the top two rows of this table with the different categories and subcategories are the header for this table. And it may seem like the bottom three rows are the footer, but the two rows of totals are only supposed to appear at the very end of all the figures. Only this small line of type in the very last row is the actual footer. But as far as InDesign is concerned for the moment, they're all just body rows. But we can convert them by selecting the appropriate rows and from the table menu, choosing Convert Rows to Header. Now, before I release the mouse, I'm going to tell you right up front that something's going to go wrong when I do this. So be prepared. Seeing the problem should actually help you understand better the idea of header, footer, and body rows, and how InDesign treats them. Did you see it? Probably not, but take a look at the Dallas and New Jersey rows. Our alternating fills are no longer applied. Anyone know why? It's because I specifically set the alternating fills to skip the first two rows when applying the pattern. And now, the Dallas and New Jersey rows have become the first two body rows of the table, as far as InDesign is concerned, because my first two actual rows are now designated as the header. But just setting the skip value to zero fixes it right up. So you've probably already figured out that converting the last row to a footer is going to cause the same problem. And it will, but you won't be able to see it immediately. I'll select the last row and choose Convert Rows to Footer, and everything looks fine, but that's pure coincidence. Since this San Francisco Bay row is already white, it looks the same for now. But if I add another row below that one by choosing Table, Insert Row, you'll see that the pattern has, in fact, been broken. The new row does not have a blue-tinted fill. But I will just delete this row because I don't need it. I'll select the entire table, then go back to the Table Options dialog to fix this. I still need to exclude the two rows of totals from my pattern, so I'll just change the skip last value from 3 to 2. Click OK, and everything's back to normal. Now, ideally, I would have designated my header and footer rows prior to applying the alternate fill settings, but I deliberately did it wrong because sometimes the best way to understand how to do something right is to know what makes it go wrong. I thought it would help to make clear how InDesign considers headers and footers differently from body rows, and how the alternating fill and stroke settings will take header and footer information into account. So now, this chart is made up of three different types of rows. Header rows, body rows, and a footer row. Why bother designating headers and footers? What's the benefit to you for making these distinctions? Let's take a look. First of all, even in a table this small, you can now use the table menu to select just header rows, just footer rows, 
or just body rows. So that speeds things up as you're working. But where headers and footers really pay off is if your table spans more than one column, text frame, or page. If this chart compared 50 cities instead of just 10, there's no way I'd have room for it on one page. And let's see how that works. I'm going to add 40 rows to this table and pull this text frame to the bottom margin. And you'll see there's my little red overset text icon. And I'm going to thread this to the right-hand page and even out the two halves of this chart as best as possible. And take a look at what's down here. Even though this is not the end of my table, my footer row is at the bottom of this frame. It's also at the bottom of the frame on the opposite side of the spread. Likewise, the top of each text frame on both the left and right hand pages have their designated header rows. And you'll also notice that these 40 additional rows maintain the alternate fill pattern we established when formatting the 10 row version of this table. Watch what happens when I select a cell in the header row on the left-hand page. The selection is reflected on the right-hand page, but there's a lock icon when I mouse over it because I can only edit the first header in the first frame. Anything I change there will be changed in every header at the top of every subsequent text frame into which this table flows. But it does not work backwards all header and footer edits have to be made in the first instance. If I change the text in a cell in this header from June to May, it's changed everywhere that the header appears, but none of those repeating instances can be edited themselves. The same is true for the footer. Any changes made to the first instance of the footer are now propagated throughout all other instances, but are not individually editable. Now that we've applied settings table-wide, we're going to bring our level of control down to the smallest components of a table, cells. For the most part, what you specify in the Table Options dialog applies to those settings to the whole table. Cell options allow you to do very specific formatting for a single row, column, or cell, or any range of rows, columns, or cells. Let's say I want to tighten up this table so that it doesn't go so deep and I can gain some room on the page for other information. There's a generous amount of space above and below the text in these cells, so I want to reduce the height of the body rows. With the body rows selected, I go up to the control palette and instead of having my row heights be exactly one quarter inch, I'll bring that down to exactly three sixteenths of an inch. And where did all my text go? What are these little red dots? The red dots are InDesign's way of indicating that my cells are overset, that the text within them doesn't fit and can't be displayed. But my text isn't that big, so why is it overset? It's overset because there are default settings for these cells that conflict with what I'm trying to fit into them. I'll select the rows again and go to the Cell Options dialog to see what's going on. In the Cell Insets portion of this dialog, you can indicate how much of a buffer you want around the text within cells so that it isn't touching any strokes or edges. You can apply separate values for the top, bottom, left, and right, which gives you an extraordinary amount of control over the position of the contents of your cell. It's these inset values that are preventing me from seeing my text at the moment. I can't fit both my text and these top and bottom spacing amounts within a 3 inch high cell. I have to reduce the inset values for the top and bottom of the cells to get my text to show in a smaller row height. But how am I supposed to know what minute fraction of an inch is going to solve this problem for me? Who wants to do that kind of math? And what if the type size changes at some point?
Fortunately, just because you can specify values for all four insets of a cell, you don't have to. There's another option. I'll go to the Rows and Columns panel of the Cell Options dialog, and rather than setting the height of this row to be exactly 0.1875 inches, I will set it to be at least 0.1875 inches. What's the difference? Watch and see when I check the preview box. Well, look at that. All my text is showing again. What happens when you use the at least option for a table row is that you're telling InDesign to automatically allow your row height to be as much as the combined height of your text and the top and bottom inset values of the cell, but to never allow the row to be less than the height that you specify in this case 0.1875 inches. It can get taller but there is a built-in limit on how short it can get. Let's take a look at some other cell options in this dialog box, which, like the table options dialog, is divided into different categories of settings. Under text you can apply inset values, as I just mentioned, specify the vertical justification of a cell, apply first baseline offset settings, clip contents to a cell, which is most appropriate for graphics placed in a table, and rotate the text within any cell to any of four fixed degree settings. Strokes and fills is pretty self-explanatory. It's essentially a combination of the options you can set in the strokes palette, swatches palette, and attributes palette, all combined into one place. Rows and columns allows you to set the at least or exactly values for row height, indicate a maximum height, and specify column width. The keep options apply to tables that span multiple frames, allowing you to start and or keep any selected row precisely where you want it. Lastly, there is the Diagonal Lines section, which I personally have never had occasion to use, but I imagine that if you do have reason for using it, it's probably pretty handy. There are many options for the type of diagonal line or lines to draw, how they're drawn, and whether or not they go above or beneath other content in your cell. Now do you see what I mean about a lot of ground needing to be covered between basic and advanced tables? Our next episode will be the thrilling conclusion to this three-part series where we'll talk about tables in a much more advanced way, seeing how this powerful feature, combined with your own good design sense and other powerful InDesign features, can produce impressive, unexpected results. Before I go, I have one quick question. Who wants a drink? Okay, more specifically, who's going to the InDesign conference and or the Creative Suite conference in Chicago in two weeks and would be interested in getting a little group together to talk face-to-face -face over some drinks? I'll be at both conferences, and I have to believe that some of you out there will be too. I'd love the opportunity to talk to listeners face-to-face -face about design, technology, workflow, wherever the conversation goes. So if you're interested, send me an email to chicagodrinks at theindesigner.com and let's see if we can get that going. As always, you can post questions and comments on the blog at www.theindesigner.com, send me an email at info at and look for me on AIM or iChat as The InDesigner. Lastly, thanks to everyone who has posted the incredible reviews on the iTunes Music Store. I wish I could thank you personally, but the reviews are posted anonymously, so this is the best that I can do. Until next time, this is Michael Murphy for the InDesigner Podcast. Thanks for watching. Thank you.